My name is Chris Causey, and I'm the lead pastor of Encounter Church in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm so excited about being here. When your pastor invited me, I jumped on this opportunity. Um, in some ways, it's like a 90s love song. I knew I loved you before I ever met you. Um, it's very much my sentiment towards you. And uh, you guys, um, not just your pastor, but you as a church, um, through your mission teams and through this offering, a couple of years ago, have enabled us to make a difference for Christ in the greater Boston area. Your sacrifice, your heart, your love for the gospel is allowing us to demonstrate the gospel. And a couple of years ago, you guys, um, during this Christmas offering, stepped in and allowed us to create uh, environments and to create the backdrop for our family ministry. And you allowed us to purchase materials and being portable to kind of create this dynamic experience that have become, that's allowed us to become the alarm clocks on Sunday morning uh, for families. That we have families who were not attending church who are now attending church because their kids love Encounter Church. They've fallen in love with Encounter Church through community events. They've learned about us through some of the mission team service projects that you guys have done in the community. And that's allowed us to create these backdrops that um, are changing lives and changing families. We hear regularly, whether it's a Muslim family, a Jewish family, whether it's an agnostic family, who our kids woke us up this morning because they wanted to be here. And I love it that families don't even have to set an alarm clock on Sunday morning because you've helped us to set an alarm clock through their three-year-old or their seven-year-old or their 10-year-old. And so in some ways, I was just excited to be able to come here and say thank you. Thank you for what you have done and for what you will do and allowing us to make a difference for Christ where, where I live and serve. But then there's also another reason I was excited about coming here because um, I, as a, a young kid growing up in the South, a single-parent home, really poor. Um, I was the first one in my family to graduate high school, the first one to go to college. Um, my first ever job was at Walmart, and uh, like as a 15-year-old. I remember it was a big deal because I was making more money than my mom was making starting off as a 15-year-old. And I fell in love. I remember sitting and watching the Walmart network on this little tiny computer back in the day and learning the 10-foot rule and embodying that thing and smiling instantly. Someone crossed that 10-foot threshold and like stocking and working really hard. And I learned the value of hard work, but I was also inspired by Bentonville and this corporation that was growing and centered there that this man with a dream to impact people with customer service and just to, to raise the standards of living on everyone around the globe had this, this dream that really impacted the world. And it was inspirational for a poor 15-year-old kid who had his first shot at kind of getting a paycheck at Walmart. And so when we were planning, my wife's like, well, what do you want to do? It's like, I want to fly in early Saturday and I want to go to the Walmart Museum. And... <laughs> Which for her is like, oh, okay. Because to this day, if I go into Walmart, she's walked around the corner and discovered this. You can question her. She's here with me. Um, she's walked around the corner. I guess my body language changes whenever I walk into Walmart. Um, because I walk in and literally I've, I've been shopping before and people will walk up to me and say, excuse me, sir, do you work here? And I'm like, what can I help you with? They're like, well, I'm looking for laundry detergent. Oh, follow me. And, and so she'll come around the corner and I'm helping an old lady or someone who's shopping because I still remember where things are stocked. 
at Walmart. Like I internalized the layout because I was supposed to know where everything was in case the customer asked. And I still have that buried inside of me and it still comes out. And people will walk up to me in Walmart today and I've had friends walk into Walmart with me and be like, you are so weird. Did they know you didn't work here? And I'm like, no. So you just help them? I'm like, that's what you do. This is Walmart. It's a 10-foot rule, bud. Like, you don't get that? And, and so just the opportunity to be in Bentonville was really quite honestly exciting for me. And uh, like I said, my wife is traveling. She came here with me. Her name is Jenny, and I am, um, man, I am so blessed and uh, humbled to be a part of the Causey family. Uh, she is the better half. She's the better looking, the smarter, the sweeter. She raises the Causey stock like way up through the roof. We split, uh, kind of split the Causey stock and now it's climbed even more um, through this little soon-to-be five-year-old named Ella. And she's kind of in the middle, kind of just being off awesome. I mean, that's her superpower. It's cute. And um, she uses that superpower mostly for good. Um, to kind of capture a little bit of her personality, we were flying to visit family recently, and she's walking on the plane, and she's kind of got this Shirley Temple vibe, like young baby Shirley Temple with the curly hair. Um, she's got my hair, believe it or not, and it's super curly and super like flowy. And she's got this bigger than life personality, and she's got her mom's sweetness and heart. So she walks on the airplane, she's just smiling because she gets the 10-foot rule. And uh, she's smiling at everyone, and the captain's like, oh my goodness, you're adorable. Come into the cockpit, sweetheart. Oh, do you want to sit in the chair? So he puts her in the chair, and he's like, let's slide the seat up. Hey, grab the throttle like you're flying the plane. And so she grabs the throttle, and she turns around, and my wife captures this picture. And, and people walking on the plane are like, why is there a four-year-old sitting in the pilot seat? Like, I've heard times are hard in the airlines, but this is a little crazy. And And... My daughter is in exactly the seat she needs to be in to get her personality. She is in control, and she's going to take everyone on that plane where she wants to go. That's my daughter. And she's changed my life. I grew up in a house full of boys. Like I said, we grew up really poor. And she's introduced me to a whole new world. And I don't just mean a whole new world from Aladdin, because I can sing that now. Um, because I know a lot about Disney, and I know a lot about Pixar. Um, I can drop the microphone with some let it grow, like right now if I needed to. And I've painted my toenails. I have played dress up. I have been every single animal imaginable so that she can gallop on my back through the house. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you that. Because here's what this little girl has taught me as a soon-to-be five-year-old. That love will make you do and will send you to go to crazy places. I've sat in shows and movie theaters through um, television shows that I never imagined as a man, as a 15-year-old, that I would go. I never imagined that I can launch into anything that's been sung on any Disney movie and do it with a smile because I'm loving it. But she's taught me that. And she's taught me that in a deeper way. But quite honestly, it's not that different from who you are as a church that your pastor and the families that started this and, and what it is now and who you are to now, you, you get that love will cause you to go and do crazy things and go to crazy places. That's what love does. That one of the ways that you guys say it is that you're a great commission and a great commandment church. And that's just another way of saying love will cause you to do and go to crazy extremes because that's the type of church you are. And that's the church that we desire to be in Boston 
But what I want to do is unpack that and go a little bit deeper and say, what does it look like, not just to be a collective we doing it, but what does it look like for me to do it? What does it look like to live a life that's marked by that great commission, great commandment, and kind of a way that you can put some handles on it and and carry it out with you into your Monday? And to, to kind of unpack that, I want to look at two marks or two distinctives, two traits that we see in a very early story of Jesus's ministry. It's these two marks at the individual level that allow us collectively to be a great commission and a great, great commandment church. And these two marks are found in Mark chapter 2, which is an easy way of remembering its location that the two marks are found in Mark chapter 2. And as you turn there in your Bible, or if you want to engage and read along with me, I'm going to have it on the screen. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark, because maybe you're here at church um, and you haven't been to church in a while, or you're still engaging or still kind of exploring this Christianity thing. The letter of Mark or the book of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It was written by a guy named Mark. That's why it's named the book of Mark. But Mark um, gets his source material because Mark's not an eyewitness for Jesus's early part of ministry. And so what historians believe is that Mark got his source material out of the interviews and out of the kind of the verbal dictation of Peter. Peter the apostle, this famous follower of Jesus, that Peter sat down with Mark and in the course of telling stories and recounting some of those early moments with Jesus, Mark pulls those things together to write this book known as the book of Mark. And that matters because you can kind of pick up Peter's personality when you read the book of Mark. It's, it jumps in, right? Peter, when you get to know him through the New Testament, you see that he's kind of impulsive. He's fast. He's quick. He's, he jumps straight on. He doesn't ask questions. He's kind of just in it and moving. And the book of Mark does the same thing. It doesn't dwell on chronologies, who, where, what, had who, where, and what, right? It jumps straight in. No background like Matthew or Luke. It's this weird book. In the Gospels, it jumps straight into action, and it's because that's Peter. That's Peter coming on board early at the kind of the ground floor of this thing that Jesus calls his ministry, and it eventually becomes the church. And so I want to kind of camp out in this 12-verse section, this early part of Mark 2, and, and in the course of us working through that, kind of unpack these two marks that are meant to mark our lives. Uh, you see in verse 1 of Mark chapter 2, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And then some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. We're going to see in the early part of this story that there's this backdrop of Jesus' ministry. He's now just started. This is the early kind of stages of his ministry. He's not nationally known. He's not internationally known. He's regional. He's this regional rabbi who turns water into wine and kind of gains this notice and this attention. He's starting to do these miracles, and people are starting to be attracted to him. He's a powerful miracle worker. He's a powerful teacher, and people are interested. And he's starting to gather crowds in this region where he lives to the point that he's, he's taking a break from his regional tour, and he goes home to Capernaum to rest, and he's become kind of such a big stir in this region that people have followed him. They know where he's staying, and so they show up. They show up in such large numbers that the crowds literally press into the house he's staying in, and they fill around the house. They're, they're listening to him teach outside the doors and outside the windows. There's this huge, massive 
crowd. And somewhere along the way, some men either see or hear about what Jesus is doing. They hear that he's a miracle worker, he's a powerful teacher, and they go back with an idea that their friend, who's paralyzed, who can't walk, could have his life changed. He could be healed if they could just get him in front of Jesus. And it's in verse 3 that we start to see the kind of the central characters of this storyline. They're introduced to us. And it's kind of like the start of a 30 for 30 documentary. It's these group of guys who are so committed. It's like this brotherhood of men who are like, they want to see their friend healed. And so they come up and hatch a plan and they buy a one-way ticket and they take their friend all the way to Capernaum to see Jesus. There's more than four of them, but we know that four specifically are, are needed to carry this grown man's body this long distance. So four of them pick up the sheet with his body inside of it, and they carry him this long distance, which is a really kind of compelling picture, isn't it? Can't you like see the camera panning in as the music plays 30 for 30, and it's got like Bob, and he's got the like man tear that kind of just like hangs on the kind of the cliff right right there and it's it's not going because real men's tears kind of hang out and they're just like sitting right there and he's like i knew when i saw jesus do it that i had to take my friend to him and most of us if we're being honest would love to be around friends like that most of us would love to be in a community of people whose defining mark is their commitment to one another and that's an attractive thing and if nothing else happened if there was no verse four this would still be a compelling story. A group of, group of friends, a group of men committed to one another that they're willing to carry their friend a long distance to the one who can actually heal him. And what we see in the, these opening first three verses is passion, which is, I think, the defining first mark of these people. They're so committed to their friend, there's passion that they're willing to carry his body for miles and miles and miles, in hot sun, on dirt roads, through difficult terrains, all for a chance to get them in front of Jesus so that his life could be changed. And here's the challenge. When I say the word passion, passion tends to invoke a lot of definitions in your mind. That I may say the word passion, but we're perhaps working off a different definition. That passion is not emotion, it's not erotic, it is something far deeper than both of those things. But we live in a culture that's redefined the word passion. It's, it's kind of weakened passion, it's kind of, kind of shoehorned passion in this area over here where it's, it's love or it's some relational thing. But passion is bigger and greater than that. Passion is meant to be the mark of his people. You see, passion, actually the root word is suffering. That's where the word passion comes from. And I love that I'm in SEC country because you understand passion. See, I went to the University of South Carolina and I made it to every home game and we would travel to away games. And I get passion because if you're in SEC football world, you breathe passion. The game's on Saturday, but it doesn't matter because you've already started planning earlier in the week what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, and that's just not the women. That's the men too. You've got it mapped out, and you know where you're going to tailgate, you know who's going to be there, and then you get there really early. It doesn't matter if it's a 12 o'clock game or an 8 o'clock game. You're there at the same time, 
And you're eating and you're hanging out and then you pack all that food up and you put it back in the trunk. Then you stand in a long line, you walk all the steps, you get to the top, and then you stand there for three or four hours. And you cheer and you scream at college students wearing white tights, running back and forth on the field. And then you walk back down those long stairs and you stand in the mass of 80,000 close friends who are all trying to do the exact same thing you're doing that then all get into a car on roads that were never designed to handle that much traffic trying to leave and you spend hours and then you finally make it home and if it was an 8 p.m. game and you were like my family and you lived two hours away, then that meant you hit the bed around 1 a.m. But I love Jesus. So that means a few hours later I'm getting up to be at church. And I would walk around like you wearing the fact that you were at last night's game with a badge of honor. Those bags are a badge. You want people to know you're tired. You want them to know you're exhausted. And it's not just because of your love for Jesus. It's because of your love for football. And it doesn't matter if you win or lost, though you prefer a win. Because then you'll wear the shirt the next day. Because you don't have to pick out your outfit. You pick out a weekend outfit. Not just Saturday. And what you do in the course of all of that is you suffer. But you enjoy it so much you don't realize you're suffering. Because you do the exact same thing. You sit in traffic for hours. You go stand in a long line with 80,000 people at Belk or Walmart or any other place. You're probably not going to wear that like a badge of honor. And the reason why is because you're passionate about football. If you're a mom, you understand this principle about suffering being the key to passion. Because long before you as a family began to suffer with a newborn, you suffer. As that life is growing inside of you, you suffer the pain, the discomfort. You suffer the sleepless nights or not being able to get comfortable. You suffer the morning sickness. You suffer all of that for that moment when you lock eyes with your child. And guess what happens in that moment? You understand the principle behind passion that suffering does not devalue the object. It raises its value higher. That you love your child more because you've suffered. I love my daughter more because I suffered six or eight weeks of not sleeping. I wouldn't want to redo it again. But I love her because of, here's the thing, when you invest in something, its value goes up. They were invested in their friend and them carrying their friend for miles brought his value up. It intensified their passion. You see, for us, our next step in increasing our passion, because let's be honest, some of us, would, if we were being honest with ourselves and honest with each other, we would say, okay, I don't have a lot of passion in my faith. I've got passion in other things, but my faith is not one of them. And maybe you walk by WeWorld or you walk by one of the booths or you, you hear your pastor calling you to be a part of some of the things that you're engaged in. And there's a part of you that says, if I was more passionate about that or if I was more committed, I, I think that would, if I, if I cared more, I think I'd want to do that. I'd want to serve there. I'd want to go there. I'd want to be a part of giving up an evening for that to happen, to see foster families just just to love on foster families. And what we can miss is that that moment is an opportunity to increase our passion because if we're willing to step out and suffer and sacrifice, what happens is in investing in that, 
and beginning to serve and, ta- and having that conversation with our coworker, we invest more in our faith, which increases its value, which increases our passion. The very thing that you're reluctant to do may be the very doorway to increase passion in your faith. You're waiting on to have more passion to do the thing, and it's doing that thing that gives you the passion. And the same thing that's true about parenting, the same thing that's true about football, the same thing that's true about faith. That's how we increase our passion. But these guys just aren't passionate. They have another trait. And you see that in Mark chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says that since they could not get to him, get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was laying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. They're not just passionate. They get there. They've carried this man all of this distance. And when they arrive, the house is full, the rooms, the doorways, the windows, the the kind of the perimeter, it's all jam-packed with people leaning in to listen to Jesus. And they could have turned around and, and we would have all still applauded them. Look how good of friends they are. They carried him all this way. It just didn't work out. Maybe next time. But they demonstrate the second mark, the second trait that's critical. You see, they're sitting there and they're holding, and no doubt their arms are burning. They're looking at the sea of humanity. And I'd like to think the one with the mullet, the MacGyver of the group, says, there's nobody on the roof. They're like, that's brilliant. There is no one on the roof. And then they get up on the roof and they say, now what? And their mullet MacGyver guy looks down and says, you know what? Listen. I hear Jesus right there. He's right underneath us. And he says, I've got an idea. And he bends down and he starts to, he starts to cut a hole, scrape a hole through the roof. You see, this is the precursor, the concrete and rebar. This is dried mud and wood sticks. And with a little bit of elbow grease, you could actually break through it. And so they begin to claw and kick and dig. And people inside the room who are listening to Jesus, imagine for a second, you're in the room. And dirt starts to fall on your head. And the room starts to get a little dusty. And then all of a sudden, a pin light of sunlight breaks through. And then it gets bigger. And then it gets bigger because some guy on the roof has decided that this house needs a sunroof. And now the hole is large and all of a sudden it's eclipsed by something being dropped inside and placed in front of Jesus. And there in front of Jesus is a man on a sheet and he's just laying there. And everybody, Jesus is in the middle of a sentence, he's in the middle of a sermon and he's just been interrupted by people who've cut a sunroof and lowered a man down. And it says that Jesus saw their faith. And I love that. I love that. It says that Jesus saw the physical expression of their faith. Now, I mentioned Peter earlier because many historians believe that the house they're currently in is Peter's house. So if you went home today and you're eating lunch and all of a sudden someone ripped a hole through your roof and lowered a man down, would you remember that moment? Yes. 
And your wife would be like, that was a tender moment. Do you see what they did for that friend? Now, can you go fix that? And while you're repairing that roof, you're thinking about the faith as you're patching the physical expression of their faith. It says that Jesus saw their faith. He saw the dirt falling from the roof. He saw the hole breaking through, and he saw them lower that man in front of them. And I wonder, when I read that, does Jesus see my faith? Is there any dirt under my fingernails that I could point to that's a physical expression of my faith and persistence? Are there people in my lives that I'm willing to get my hands dirty for them to have an opportunity to come to know Jesus? Would he see dirt under my fingernails or is my hands clean? That's a convicting statement for me. To say, God, I want my hands to be dirty because of the persistence that I have to reach people for Christ. But I love it. Jesus is such a master teacher. He takes advantage of this opportunity. He says in this last statement in verse 5, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Here in Mark chapter 2, at the very beginning of the ministry, the very beginning of Jesus starting, Jesus sees a moment to seize on his real purpose. He says, your sins are forgiven. You see, he recognizes they've brought him here to be physically healed, but Jesus sees a deeper problem. We won't read the passage, but if you want to read it later, you'll see in verses 6 to 11, an argument breaks out because a bunch of religious people in the room are saying, how can Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is aware of this tension he's just created. And so he says, I want to make sure that everyone understands that I have come to not just physically heal, but to heal mankind's deepest, deepest, deepest brokenness, their spiritual need. And he says, so your sins are forgiven. Now get up and take your mat and walk out. And this is the earliest moment in the Gospels where we see this very tangible, vivid expression of Jesus being here to rescue us from our sins. That faith is the way we activate that rescue by putting our trust in him. And it's the first glimpse we get at Jesus' divinity. Anyone in that room, had they worked out the implications, would have figured out that he is here to save people from their sins. And he, he's God. It was all packed in, Mark chapter 2. And this moment where their friends literally take it through the roof to get their friend in front of him. You see, at the end of the day, what should fuel our passion in our persistence is the fact that we stand on the other side of the original Black Friday. This day when God in flesh goes to a cross and through his, through his death, he conquers and defeats and satisfies the debt that we all have. The red that mankind was living in was canceled out by the red of his blood. And by doing so, he created the original Black Friday where for the first time in human history, mankind was back, had the potential to be back in positive relationship with the God who created them. It was the original Black Friday because his death paved the way for us to have life. Our debts were canceled because of his wealth, of his holiness, and of his grace. And then three days later, he walked out 
of a tomb, conquering sin and death, and saying to us that there is nothing greater, there is nothing larger or bigger than I am. That I am the great I am, and I have conquered sin, and I have conquered death. I have defeated doubt. I have broken through the barriers and the chains, that there is no addiction strong enough. There is no broken relationship outside of the bounds of what Jesus Christ can come in and restore. That he steps out of the grave declaring over all of us that he is a God who takes dead things and makes them alive. Dead marriages and breathes life into them. Broken things and breathes beauty into them. He brings dead things back to life. And I just wonder, is there something dead in this room? Is there a relationship? Is there circumstances that you've forgotten the fact that he is the God who brings dead things back to life? Because he did it then and he's still doing it today. Do you really believe Do I really believe that Jesus is the only one who heals and restores and forgives and brings life? Do I really believe that people spend eternity somewhere? Do I really believe he is the way, the truth, and the life? And if I believe that, then passion and persistence are not some exceptional thing that should be present in my life. It should be the norm. It should be the logical outworking of my life. Because that's what happens when you believe there is only one cure. Because I can tell you as a parent, if my daughter contracted a disease and the only person in the world could cure her were on top of a mountain in some remote, remote land, I would sell everything I have and I would walk, I would drive, I would ride, I would fly, I would give everything that I am. And I would die taking my very last breath, moving her in the direction of someone who can heal her. And if God is the ultimate and the truest parent, and the way that he's demonstrated life through and healing and through making a way through the cross, then I think we as his people should demonstrate that same passion and persistence. Because love will take us to crazy places and love will cause us to do crazy things. And as a pastor and as a church, we've seen that flesh out in our own lives. That God began to stir this this desire for church planning in us about five years ago. And we start to dream of where that could be. And we land in this city called Boston, which is this revolutionary place. Not just because it birthed our nation. But because when it birthed our nation, it reflected a little bit of the personality of that city and that region. And that things start there, but they don't end there. Your life is still being impacted, not just because of your allegiance to a flag, but to the fact that you'll sign on to Facebook this afternoon. Because that was started there too. You see, it's a place where world leaders get trained. It's a place where innovations happen. It's the number one patent-producing city in the world. It's the most innovative, influential city in the world per square mile. Nobody else tops it. And yet, at the same time, it's a city in the midst of a region that's one of the most unchurched places in our nation. The original Bible Belt is now a whole in our nation for faith. The community I live in, the region I live in, is 1.69% evangelical. You have to kind of wrap your mind around that. I mean, there's that much lostness and that much influence. 
happening simultaneously. And we felt this call and this stirring to, to go and be part of that. And God didn't just move in us. He moved in other families. And seven families, including our own, moved there. Moved a thousand miles to invest our lives there. And we said, if this group of friends were willing to do everything to get him in front of Jesus, then we should be willing to do everything we can do to get them in front of Jesus. So we didn't show up in our community trying to come up with ways of making them like us. We moved into their communities and tried to become like them so that they would have an opportunity to be introduced to him. I grew up in the South, and I love that I'm from the South. There are things about the South that are very distinct that you don't see anywhere else in America. But I knew that my Southern accent as a communicator would be a barrier. I literally hired a voice coach to work out my Southern accent. And I mean, I had a sweet honey boo-boo accent. I mean, it was like sweet butter just rolled off my lips. And I said, you know what? If that's a barrier to reaching them, then it's worth losing it. And so most people, when I speak every single Sunday, they don't realize that I'm from the South because I don't have a Southern accent anymore. Now, I do right now because I'm with you, and it comes back, man, like a full force. But... That was a small thing to get rid of. It was a small thing to sacrifice so that they might be closer to the one who loves them. And as a church, we were faced with this tension. Man, we want to create environments where Christ can draw people to him. And you guys allowed us to do that in our family environment. And we started hearing stories of kids being the alarm clock. And then we started seeing people start to reset their definition because we live in a place where Spotlight, the movie that gained an Oscar because of the Catholic priest scandal that it chronicled, was not a movie to them. It was, it was literally reality for them. And that we have people who don't come to the church who are married to people in the church because of the impact of that reality on their lives. And we knew, how do we move into a community and reset the definition? Because for them, church is something that tries to take from them. And we said, we see church as being something that's for them, not motivated by trying to take something from them. So we, we set in to serve and to love, and that's why your mission team's engaged and helped us to, to reset the definition so that now people are beginning to believe that church should be known, that a church should be known for what it does for the community, not what it takes from them. And I hear that. I hear all the time that is such a lovely sentiment. I've never heard that before. And it's not from people who just grew up in church. It's Jewish families whose son attends Encounter Church who says, every time I'm here, my soul soars. Whose mom recently said to me, I wish I could find a church like this for my daughter because I see the impact it's having on my son's life. People who grew up going to synagogue who are being drawn to the truest expression and the ultimate fulfillment of their faith prestigious Boston professor who doesn't believe what we believe who said to me, I go home and I treat my wife differently. That's why I come to this church. And then in the midst of God working and moving and 226 people attending at Easter in a community in a region where the average church is 20 to 40 people, all of a sudden we face opposition and they lobby the school board and get us kicked out. And we have a choice to make. We can leave the community and start somewhere else where we will have a chance to rent. 
because it's one of the most expensive places in America to live. And we were paying $6,000 plus just to rent a middle school. And we were like, well, where do we go? We've got so many people on the edge of their seat of giving their life to Christ. We can't leave this community. And so we did what they did. We went on top of the roof and said, is there a way? Let's double down here. Because there are dozens of people who are just on the edge. And we don't want to walk away from them. We want to do whatever it takes. And so we did something crazy. We willingly took on $10,000 more a month in rent. On top of the six. So that we could go permanent. Because we believe that there's a God who's committed to reaching our community. And that he's brought us to that community. And he's not deterred by a number. That he gave up his life so that they could know him and have life. And so we said, well, we'll give up whatever we have to give up so that we don't leave. And if that means there's no other place to, to rent and all we can do is get a permanent space, then we'll do it, even if that's an insane, insane thought. And it's been incredible to watch God begin to move and call and draw people. But what we've done is the same thing you can do. Many of you already have footprints in places where God has placed you there to make a difference. And for you, your persistence may look like you doubling down where you are. Maybe it's your kid's sports team. Maybe it's your cycling club. Maybe it's your football kind of tailgating buddy group. But you being willing to to press into the awkward moment like they pressed in. To be passionate and to be persistent. And to demonstrate your love. God's love for them in a way that starts to rip a hole through a roof so that you might be the reason your friend is introduced to him. That that's what is meant to mark us as a people, as this passion and this persistence. See, the first encounter church story involved a girl named Brittany who embodied these two marks and distinctives. She was passionate and she was persistent and God was working in her life and there was a college Bible study and she was befriending this guy and she noticed that his life was everything opposite of the gospel that had rescued her. He was in the drugs, he was in the alcohol, he was into money, he was into doing all of these things that she realized was ultimately empty. And so she reached out to him and said, hey, I want to invite you to this college Bible study. And his response is, I'm not going to waste my gas on that stupid Bible study. To which she promptly replied brilliantly, "Um, that's okay, I'll waste my gas. And he couldn't couldn't reply to that. She had dropped the mic. Bam. And he said, okay. She would pick him up, drive 30 minutes out of her way every single week. The end of that kind of session that was going on, She could not attend, but God had been doing something in his heart. So he goes that night, the very last night they meet, even without her. He wastes his gas on that stupid Bible study. And that night, he hears the gospel. What's profound about that weekend is that that same, same time he's hearing that, that's the same weekend he decides he doesn't want to live anymore. He'd gotten to everything. He... He had everything going for him. And he decided this is the emptiest he'd ever felt. And so he decided this is all life has to offer. I don't want this anymore. 
And the same weekend, he, doesn't des- he decides he doesn't want to live anymore. He's introduced to the God who brings life, who brings hope. And his words that night was, God, if you're real, if you're everything this guy says you are, then I'm yours. Forgive me and let me be with you. Always. And that was 15 years ago. And that was me. See, Brittany stepped into my life. And her passion, her persistence, opened a doorway, opened a hole in a roof, and lowered me in front of the only one who can rescue and redeem, who can restore a broken heart. And I had decided I didn't want to live anymore. And it wasn't this emotional depression. It was the logical outworking of this is everything the world has to offer. If this is all, I don't want to spend the next 20, 30, 40 years of my life wasting my time on something I already know will not satisfy. And that night, I met the only one who could. And for the last 15 years, for the last 15 years, Brittany lowered me down in front of him. And I've been walking with him ever since. Never dreamed of ministry. I'm married to an incredible godly woman who I love so, so much. And we have a soon-to-be five-year-old little girl. And I have the privilege of being a part of what God is doing in Boston. All because of Brittany. And is it possible that maybe some, some of you are maybe like me. You're in this room today and God's been pressing into your life and today's the day. Today's your August 7th where you stand up and say, God, if you're real, if you're everything that guy says you are, then I'm yours. For some of you, I would just politely say, is there someone who you would never invite to this room because you think they're so far gone? Is there a friend? Is there a neighbor? Is there a loved one who you think is beyond the hope of what Jesus can do? And is it possible that God has placed you in their life to be that Brittany? to be passionate and persistent and to claw a hole through a roof so that they might be lowered down in front of him and that he might do what only he can do, which is save and rescue. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you you bring life and you bring hope that there are people in this room who need to hear your love for them and need to receive that love. And I pray that today would be their day. God, may you right now bring faces and names to our mind of people that we think are too far gone, that are beyond. And may you ignite within us passion and persistence to to reach out and to continue to love and serve and double down. And God, thank you for what you're doing through this church and this community and around the world. And thank you for what you're doing through this church and my community to impact the world. And thank you above all of these things for your passion and your persistence, Jesus. That you stepped into this earth, that you persevered through the cross and that you made a way 
where previously they had been. No way. And it's in that name of Jesus I pray.